we're going to start a new series today, as you can see, it's called Godonomics, and um, this is something that I have never taught in this church. We've been here four years-ish, something like that, and uh, talking about what God has to say about money. Now, I'm going to preface this before we get too far into it, because this is just going to be kind of introductory, kind of talking about the system in place that ultimately God has established. But it's, what does God have to say with money? And, and when you get into this stuff, inevitably, somebody gets mad. It is absolutely amazing that you can talk about anything. You can talk about politics. You can talk about, um, does God heal today? You can talk about things that divide the church. And people will be like, yeah, okay, I can see that other side. But you bring up money. I'm not kidding. The last church I was at, the pastor was teaching on tithing, which we will get into, okay? And, and I'll show you exactly what Scripture says about it. Then you make the decision for yourself what you're going to do about it, but that's up to you. And um, it was a really well done, team, very balanced, very scriptural, and a guy storms out the back. And when I say storms out the back, kicks open the back door and screams at the security guards. He said, nobody's going to tell me what to do with my money. And nobody was telling him what to do with his money. I mean, maybe God, but, I mean, there was nothing there. And that's the problem we have, is that a lot of churches avoid this subject for this reason. And there's a lot of nonsense that's out there, guys. There's a lot of teaching that is so unbiblical as unreal. Because they'll do things to try to get more money. Every week, I get an email, and especially certain times of year, saying how to increase your giving in 2018, in 2019, how to double your giving, how to increase your budgets. I don't know about you guys, but if I have to manipulate to try to increase the budget, maybe we're doing it wrong. And last I checked that this was God's church and he can take care of it. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to stand on my head and spit gumballs off the stage in order to get people to give money. That might be entertaining especially the attempt of standing on my head, I could probably spit the gumballs. But we don't need to do anything like that. We don't need this manipulation. We don't need to give uh, in, into this Passover offering to receive the Passover blessing. The 70th year of Israel, we don't need to give $70.77. All of this stuff, and some of you guys know what I'm talking about, and some of you don't, but you will. I promise you. But all I'm asking is that as we get into this, that you just stay patient. Because I might teach something different than what you've thought, believed, or heard before, and that's okay. And you may not have realized that God has actually a lot to say about money. Because money is what makes the world turn, believe it or not. In fact, if I were to throw this out there, it's just a question. Is that how many different Bible verses do you think mention money in some capacity? If you were to throw out a random number, what would it be? Seven? That is definitely a random number. As the most of any other thing, okay? Put a number on that for me. One-fourth? See, now we're putting percentages. Let's, let's, let's nail this. We're picking out how many gumballs are in the jars, folks. you got to put them like, oh, I think it's 25% full. No, they look at There you go, 777. Oh, there's a comedian in every crowd. It's over 2,000. Thank God has something to say about this over 2,000 dealing with finances and money and things like that there are verses in there that we don't even recognize that are dealing with financial principles and the problem we have today is especially in our country is economics is not taught yes there are economic classes but 
true economics, how money works, how it, all of all the investments, what do you do with it, how do you save for a rainy day, all of this different stuff is not taught today. I mean, I have a friend of mine that owns several rental properties, and he had to teach a recent high school graduate how to write a check. She had no idea. I was really surprised that he didn't help her fill in the amount, if you know what I'm saying. Because she didn't have a clue. She'd never done it. There are a lot of things that we don't do. Now, I'm not here. I'm not to teach you about investment strategies or anything like that, right? If you want some of that, there's people here smarter than I when it comes to that. But what I am going to teach you is what does God say about it? And that's what we're going to focus on. Because just with anything, all I care about is God's opinion on the matter. I do not care what Dave Ramsey says. I don't care what Robert Kiyosaki says. I don't care what whatever financial genius is out there saying this is the latest and greatest. Buy now and we'll throw in a set of steak knives deal. Listen, all I care is about what God says. That's all I care. And so as we get into this, we're going to just look at Scripture, just like we do with anything else. But importantly here is this is piggybacking off of the previous series, The New Man. Because the one thing about the new man is that when we truly are born again, okay? I didn't say that we go to church. I didn't say that we call ourselves a Christian, that we are born again according to the biblical model of what God has set up. Then our heart has been transformed and changed into something new created by God. And who does that belong to? It belongs to God. It's His. It's not ours. Thus, when we do that, we do the things that God wants us to do. We say the things that God wants us to say. And you know what that has to do with? Your checkbook. Because there was a preacher a long time ago, John Osteen was one of them, but there were several of them who said, there are two things that I can look at to tell a person where they are in the Lord. And this is going to go back in time a little bit. But the preset dials on the radio, okay, and that was the time where you had to turn the crank to, you know, dial it in real real quick, and they had the, the fancy ones where you'd push the button, you see the needle jump ahead to the next one where you'd saved it. Some of you young folks have no idea what I'm talking about, okay? If I handed you a Walkman, you would try to answer it. You wouldn't know what to do with it. But they still, there you go. There you go. Just, just throw the old eight tracks in there and head down the road. But, so is that, they said the other one is the checkbook. Because where your money goes is where your heart is. And you're going to see that scripturally. You're going to see that. So I'm not up here to try to get you to give more. Guys, in fact, this is not a series I'd plan on doing. You know why? This is a giving church. Very giving church. Our budget's more than met every single month. We, you see we've been able to make improvements. You guys, the things with the fifth quarter and all of that, it's all taken care of. We never run in a deficit. You realize how rare that is nowadays? There are churches, even in this community, but in this state and around the country, and pastors I talk to, that are dipping into their reserves every single month. Not because they're expanding or doing anything like that. They're paying the bills. And we're not doing that. We're, we're great. Things are going well. So I'm not trying to get anything out of you. What I'm trying to show you is what God has to say about it. That's all I, all I care about. So let's look at this. i got a quote here from you, for you. It says, money may not buy happiness, but it sure does buy everything else. You see stuff like this all over the place. There, there are uh, quotes that are thrown out there and, and things like that. Is it true that money can buy happiness? Nope. But it buys Reese's peanut butter cups, doesn't it, Janet? That's almost the same thing. <laughs> there you go. You know, I mean, here's the thing, guys, is that we are in America taught to do what? We go to school to get a good education. We get a good education so that we can get a good job. And we get a good job so that we can do what? Live the American dream. And the American dream is, is that we are financially set. We can go and do what we want. You know what's the one thing that's not taught in financial education today? Giving. 
not taught at all. And yet, the Bible talks about it all the time. In fact, and I, I mentioned this a while back, but um, there are a lot of these big business guys and stuff. I listen to all sorts of different podcasts. I'm a podcast junkie. I love them. I listen to them when I'm driving, when I'm mowing, all this other stuff. Is They're talking about how they have discovered by giving 10% of their profits to charity that it has actually increased their bottom line. And their words were like, went like this. I can't explain it. And I don't really understand it, but he's like, it works. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, wheels turn. They have no biblical foundation for any of this stuff. I'm thinking, well, why not do 20% then? If 10% is good, what's wrong with 20? But, but, I mean, again, there are things that God has set up that work if we follow his principles. And there's so much about our actual system, the way it was set up early in this country, that follows those godly principles that if we just get back to them, like once again, we would be a very successful country. So there are... Basically, individuals get their view of money come from three different economic ideas, these fundamental factors. The economic system of which they grew up in, the family financial philosophy, and I'm going to explain all these in a minute, and their spiritual values. Those are the three things that really influence what you think about money. So in the U.S., we have what kind of system do we have? We have a capitalist system, right? A capitalist system is pretty simple. When you really break it down, you have a right to own property. You have this division of labor where you can go and work, and if you don't like what they're paying you, what you're doing, guess what you can do? You can go work somewhere else. You're not, you're not put into this system of which you're stuck with this job. Did you realize that there are countries that say, okay, you're going to be a dentist, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a welder? They're t- the government tells them what they're going to do, and their wages are set by the government. And so you have that uh, ability to go and do what you want. You also have individual rights. You, as the individual, have the right to make decisions for yourself. If you want to be a welder, then you can go and be a welder. What kind of degree do you have to be a, have to have to be a welder? None. In this country, you need to own a welder. And you go out and find people that are willing to pay you for your services. You see, there is nothing in this country that you can do that you really need a degree for outside of like medicine and things like that because the government's involved in that. And understandably so. Like you do not, listen, don't come to me with some ailment and ask me to fix it. Like, oh, I need surgery on my arm. What are you doing Thursday? You know, that's that's not going to end well. Also, if your car needs fixed, don't ask me that one either. But, But as this individual right, you have a right that's your stuff your property, you can do with it what you want. A lot of countries do not share that. We are very fortunate here. And it's because when the founders set up the United States, they set it up on biblical principles. Thou shalt not steal, one of the Ten Commandments, implies what? That you own something. It is yours. I cannot steal it from you if it does not belong to you. That makes sense? So there are rights there that are set up. In China, they have a communist system. So they have, individuals have much fewer rights, and the government plays a much bigger factor in their life, in fact, controls them. It tells them what they're going to do. So their rights comes from the government. In the United States, where do our rights come from? They come from God, right? The government protects those rights, at least that's what they're supposed to do, okay? Now, we'll get into some of the nuances of these things later. So that's kind of the basics of the economic system. You guys go to foreign countries, if you've ever had the opportunity, you see what a difference it is in these other countries. I've been to the Philippines, I've been to Mexico, and I've been to El Salvador. Those are the three. All three of their thoughts on money are completely different than ours. When you go to El Salvador, they don't have much. 
and because of where they were brought up or whatever, they may or may not be able to just go out and find work. I mean, when we were putting the roofs on the buildings that were down there, we were paying the gang members $5 a day for their time. Five bucks a day. And they're gang members, right? I was trying to see if they wanted to come up here and put some roofs on for me. I'll pay them 10 bucks a day and be happy to do it. And all the pupusas they can eat. I mean, but, but it's completely different down there. They can't just go out and find work. And if they have a job, they're scared to death to leave it. Now, they have some individual rights, but there in that economy, the whole government really is controlled by 14 families. Ask Alma about it. She'll tell you about it. There are 14 extremely wealthy families. They have a system of the haves and the have-nots. You know what's missing? The middle. That's what we have here. You see that in a lot of communist, communist systems. You have the haves and you have the have-nots. Look at North Korea. That's a perfect example. They have, you know, your upper echelon, Kim Jong-un, and whomever affiliates with him, and then you've got extreme poverty, but there's nothing in the middle, where that, our system allows you to go out there and kill something and drag it home, right? Now, the other thing that influences how you think about money is how you grew up. The financial philosophy that your parents had, like it or not, we tend to hold to that when we leave the nest. It's true of almost everything. How you were brought up plays a great influence on how you act once you get out, okay? So if you grew up in a house where they spend everything they make and they just live like vicariously paycheck to paycheck, not because it's just making ends meet, but I mean they are just spendthrifts. You know, they're eating out every meal, doing whatever. What do you think the kids are going to do? They're likely going to do the same thing. And so it, it's just the way it goes. On the, on the flip side, if you grew up in a house that is extremely generous, that gave to people, helped them out when they needed it, um, were giving in the church, then you likely are going to share that same spirit. And I'll give you an example out of my life. You see, my brother and I, who were two years apart, saw our lives growing up completely different, even though there was only two years apart. As I told you guys, when I think I was nine years old, my dad had lost his job. Or maybe, no, I was 11, excuse me. I started throwing newspapers when I was 9 because I wanted some spending money. I did not like having to go to my parents and say, can I have five bucks to go to the arcade? Okay, five bucks would actually get you a good time in the arcade back then. But, and, and so it's like I started throwing newspapers. Well, I started putting money in a savings account. Well, my dad lost his job. He had worked for, he, we ended up in Nebraska because of the nuclear plant. He went to work for another company. The company went bankrupt. So he lost his job. He was out of work for six months. After that, he and his current business partner decided to start their company on their own. The same one that had failed, changed the name, and went about it a different way. Now, they're successful today, but that's only happened in the last probably 10 years. But back then, it was a struggle. I remember government cheese, right? It was a white box that said cheese on it. It did not taste good, Okay. They took my newspaper money to buy groceries. I mean, it was, it was rough, you know. I did not have fashionable clothes. We bought at Salvation Armies and things like that. Whatever's cheapest. Now, my brother, who was younger, was much larger, so I got his hand-me-downs. But that was just how it worked. And so I watched my parents struggle. My dad worked all the time. He was never home. He would always make it to ball games, but to go out and throw the ball in the yard was not going to happen because the man was exhausted. He was trying to get things going and take care of his family as best he could. And so I watched that. And so I, in my philosophy, is like, okay, you can go out and work hard and be successful. It can happen. But during that time, my mother never stopped giving. My mother controlled the checkbook. Okay, that's why I say my mother. 
is if somebody needed something, she was there to help. If somebody came over with no food, she's emptying the cupboards and giving to them. And I remember this, and I will never forget this as long as I live. There was a Christmas when we were, I was young, obviously, and the church that we were attending said there was a needy family in the church, and they were going to take up an offering for, uh, to help them buy Christmas presents. That's what they were going to do. And I remember my mom pulled out her last five bucks and threw it in the offering. What we didn't know is we were that family. That's what we didn't know. So they brought the cash over to us after that. It was like 180 some dollars. And again, this is the late 80s, okay, or mid somewhere in that range. So, I mean, 180 bucks went a lot further than it is today. You can barely fill your car up for that anymore, especially once you charge you four bucks for a hot dog inside. So, we, I mean, we counted that money and counted it again. But I, I just remember it was her last $5 is all she had. And all she was concerned with was like, well, let's help them have you know, something good, not knowing it was us. Those were things that stuck in my mind. I've never forgotten those things and the generosity that my mother has. Thus, I adopted that philosophy. Now, my brother is not generous, right? I mean, he'll help you out, but there's usually strings attached. He's a good guy, don't get me wrong. But he didn't experience the financial burden and the stress of that when, when he was young because he was just a little too young to really recognize it. And so he was the one that he, I want the name brand this, I want the name brand that, I want this, and I want that. And, and my parents felt bad for him. I mean, he was a large young man. He was, he, was, he was the fat kid. And so he was picked on all the time. I mean, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but when he graduated high school, he was 510 pounds. He was not, I'm not just saying he was a little overweight. I mean, he was almost had his own TV show. That's a joke. You know, I mean, he was a big boy. And he lost a bunch of the weight now, and he's doing okay. But, but, I mean, it was one of those things that my mom felt sorry for him and thus gave in to him because he was picked on mercilessly. And so, you know, we just have two just different philosophies on how we look at things. And that all has to do with our upbringing. And so, again, it plays such a big part. And I bet you, if you think back of the why you do what you do, it has to do with either exactly how you were brought up or because you saw that and have recognized that as a problem that you don't do that anymore. You, you've changed. So those are two of the reasons. The third one is the spiritual value. These people's view of money is rooted in some either religious or moral understanding of life how money works and what we do with it and who it belongs with. If they grew up usually in a very strict religious household, their view of money is this, it is evil, right? In fact, this is what you see all over the internet. This is a meme. It goes around. I see it probably every month. If money is the root of all evil, then why do they ask for it at church? That's a fair question, right? I've had conversations with people about this, and they're like, well, you know, money's the root of all evil. Is that what the Bible says? It's not. What does it say? 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's the verse. Now, I've had a conversation with a lady, this was several years ago, um, who came to me and she had this very strict religious upbringing. And that you just kind of got rules that you follow and you just do this and you do that and all of that. And she said, and she would, she would not discuss money with anybody, family members, nothing like that. And so because of that, or the, the way she brought up, that she believed that, that money is the root of all evil. And thus, you know, it, it should just, we shouldn't talk about it, we shouldn't deal with it. And so I said, well, I, she had her Bible with her. I said, well, do me a favor. Will you flip to 1 Thessalonians 5 for me real quick? Because I've never heard that before, but this is what I'm thinking. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from every form of evil. So if money is evil, then we should abstain from it completely. And I was willing to help her out. 
Let me help you not have money. I will take this off your hands and I will dispose of it properly. I will make sure that you do not have any evil near you whatsoever. And she got to thinking. I said, you know, I'm like, where did you get this idea? And she told me it was, it was all about how she was brought up, that money was evil. Parents struggled to make ends meet, and all those rich, you know, fat pigs that had all the money, had the nice cars, had the nice houses, they were the ones that were keeping everybody down. But what, let's go look at this again. It's 1 Timothy 6. It says, for the love of money is a root, a root, not the root, a root of all kinds of evil. And because of the love of money, some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. They pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You see, it's the love of money. I got to have this. I need it. It's trying to climb the corporate ladder for, for status. It's driving that nice vehicle because you want everybody to see it. It's having that nice house so that people can look at you and be like, man, I wish I could be like them. You see, that's the problem is when money has us, not us having money. Money is amoral. It is not moral. It is not immoral. It is simply a means of a transaction. That's all it is. It should mean less to you than anything else. Because guess what, guys? Who is the source? It is Jesus. And we say that, right? We don't believe that. Because if we truly believed it, the way we would talk, the way we would think would be completely different. Do you know how many Christians I see freak out when the economy takes a turn? What are we going to do? Some people that have retired and they they get their retirement every month or based off investments. Oh my goodness, how are we going to make ends meet? I don't know what we're going to do. We're not trusting God. If He is the one that meets our needs, is according to His riches and glory, through Christ Jesus, His Son, then I don't care what the economy is going to do. I don't care who the president is or who's in Congress or any of that stuff. It makes no difference. If we truly trust God, then let's trust God. You see, we say it with our lips, but our heart is far from Him. The difference is, is when you go to a foreign country, they have no choice but to trust God. Why do we see more miracles happen on foreign soul? Like we see blind people's like eyes open and they, they hear, and, and people who couldn't walk get up and walk. And even minor stuff that they get healed. Because here, you have a headache, you can take an aspirin. There is no aspirin. They have no choice. If God doesn't heal them, they, there's no hope. So they have to put their faith in God. What would happen to us if we had no choice? You see, we are so spoiled and blessed, it's ridiculous. And it's in that order. We're spoiled. We've got it so good. So good. So what is money? I mean, we break it down. What is it? It's a medium of exchange. It's recognized in the U.S. by everyone as this piece of paper, and we take it in exchange for goods or services, right? Right? If you're selling a widget, you'll take that paper. Why? It is backed by the government. It's the good faith of them. Now, there's nothing holding that. It's not backed by gold anymore. Thank you, Nixon. Took us off the gold standard, allowing us to print money. So if you wonder why it's more expensive now than it was in 1988, that's part of the reason. Is because our money's not backed with anything. But we take it in exchange. It's nothing but a piece of paper. It truly holds no value outside of the numbers that are printed on it. Right? That's why people print them at home. Because there's nothing backing it anyway. So, what's another piece of paper? 
You guys ever get any of that kind of stuff down there at the bank? I'm sure you do. I'm sure it's come through at some point. But, but I mean, again, it has no intrinsic value. It is not moral, and it is not immoral. It is amoral. Because the same dollar that buys crack cocaine is the same dollar that can go into an orphanage and help them out. It's the same bill. It's the same piece of paper. It's what we do with it that counts. And ultimately, as you're going to see as we get into this, is all that matters from us is our heart. Now, I know that, again, I'm saying this somewhat tongue-in-cheek because this is a giving church. I mean, if there is a need, y'all meet it. I mean, just Isaac is an example. You guys, $1,500 went to his tuition out of $2,800 that he needed. Guys, he's over halfway there. That's awesome. That takes such a huge burden off him that he's just blessed. I walked into, into the Rama office and went there and said, hey, here's what we want to do. And she's like, oh, okay. And, and stuff. And I told her, I, I, you know, I said, well, there may be more coming down the road. I don't know. You know, because he's a young man. He's out there in the big city for the first time on his own. He, you know, he's in a foreign place. Uh, I'll tell you guys' story later. But, I mean, it was an interesting experience getting him down there. Let's just put it that way. Uh, my wife can attest to that. So, you're not itching anymore, are you? Okay, good. Good. So, I mean, but, but guys, it's, it's like when there's something that needs to be met. I mean, my goodness, when we went down to El Salvador the last time, I said, hey, guys, we're going to just take them and we're going to bless them. We took $2,000 down there. When I went to the Philippines, I said, Let's, this is a church we, we sponsor. This is a church that we work with. Let's take them something. I think it was about 1500 bucks. Anytime there's a need, you guys meet it. So please don't think that I'm saying this because you're not doing a good job. I'm doing this because, A, not all of us know this stuff. Sometimes we forget that we've been doing this a long time and we know it. And there's a lot of folks that have never been taught anything biblically about money, number one. And number two is that we can still make adjustments in our life. Because no matter what we can give, we should be doing it with a cheerful heart. Not out of necessity, but because we want to. Because really God is who we depend on. So it is money in and of itself is nothing but a medium of exchange. It's a store of value because we, it has no expiration date. You can set it aside. You can build it up, a little rainy day fund. It's not like the gift card to uh, you know, Applebee's or something like that. It's got an expiration date and you've got so much time to use it. You know, and if you don't use it, well, then you're just out. So it's got a store of value that you can do with, and it's in a unit of account. Is that prices and economies are expressed universally accepted as a monetary unit. Whatever that number is, whatever that piece of paper is, right now in Venezuela, I mean, inflation's going through the roof. I mean, if you want to be a millionaire, go to Venezuela, because they'll hand you a million of whatever their currency is in a heartbeat, and you might be able to buy a slice of bread with it. I mean, it's bad. They went socialist a while back, and it has completely wrecked their economy. Every culture in the world has some sort of a monetary system in it, be it a paper exchange or a metal exchange. You guys can look back at ancient times. They have those old coins. I've got a few of them in my office that they use, and they were hand-pressed uh, and things like that. Um, they'll have a bartering system, which they exchange goods. You know, hey, I need my car fixed. Will you take three chickens? You know? Have you ever, guys ever watched Little House on the Prairie? You remember the doctor? They're always paying him, like, eggs and chickens and stuff. Try that today. Like, go down to the doctor's office and, like, have two chickens and a goat and say, hey, I'm here to get my flu shot. I don't think that's going to work. You never know, but I don't think so. The crazy part is, is that if he accepted that, he still has to claim those on his taxes. That's so bizarre to me. Like, go ahead and audit the chickens and the goat. Anyway, sorry, sidebar. So it's something like that. It's precious metals. Gold, silver, copper, all of those things is, is a monetary system that can be used. 
it can be exchanged. You know, gold has a dollar value that we put on. You can go and buy gold for X amount of pieces of paper, right? So it all kind of goes round and round and round and round. But again, what does the Bible say about all this stuff? And this is what we're going to get into as we go through this series, is what does God say about money? In Matthew 6, 24, it says, No one can serve two masters. You guys have heard this verse, I bet you, a million times. For either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Isn't that what it says? It's not what it says. That's what's quoted though, right? You can't serve God and money. What does it say? You can't serve God and mammon. How do we get money out of that? What's a mammon? You ever thought to ask that question? Well, guess what? I'm going to tell you what a mammon is. But not today. Come back next week. You see, these are things that we do, but we put our own spin on it, but we need to understand what mammon is. That is crucial, okay? Mark chapter 4, verse 18. Now, these are the ones sown among the thorns. What are we talking about? The parable of the sower, right? The four soils, the word sown, the birds of the air come, which is the devil steals the word from their heart, lest they believe and be saved, and then you get into all the other things. This is talking about the thorny soil. They are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, and what? The deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. You see, this is somebody who's born again. But the cares of this world, put that as whatever you may be. But you notice it doesn't say riches. It says the deceitfulness of riches. That doesn't mean he's out there ripping people off. That's not what it's talking about. It says the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter, and they choke the word, so they don't bear fruit. What is the deceitfulness of riches? Well, again, we'll talk about that when we talk about mammon. Proverbs 23, verse 4. Do not overwork to be rich because of your own understanding. Cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. This does not say don't work. It says don't overwork for one purpose, to be rich. This would take you back to the deceitfulness of riches. Proverbs 11, verse 28. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Where's your trust? It's not the riches that's the problem. It's he who trusts in his riches. Because you have money, then you can do this. Where should our trust be? In God. Always. Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. What do we see again? Love of money. Obsessions with it. This is all I want. Proverbs 11.4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, for righteousness delivers from death. What's this talking about? The day of wrath. The coming of the Lord, right? The great and terrible day. It's coming. That's why we're telling people about it. Guys, got to be born again. Jesus is going to return, and it's not going to be good. But and when that day comes, it doesn't matter how much money you have, right? Again, we're going to drill down on all of these guys. I'm just kind of introducing this today. But your mind should be spinning now, starting to think about verses. Think of the story that Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus, right? didn't matter how rich he was on this earth. It's where he ended up. It didn't make any difference. You cannot negotiate your way out of hell. Even Trump couldn't do that, the great negotiator. That's my one Trump joke, okay? 
1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. That means arrogant. Nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Wait a minute. God gave us money to be enjoyed? Sure. Nothing wrong with that. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, again, let's break this down. So those who are rich, okay? Now, here's the deal. I don't know if you know this. You may not feel rich, but if you own one car, even if it looks like my red van, and it's got holes in it, and it leaves a chunk of itself in every parking lot that I go to, you are wealthier than 48% of the world. You're in the upper echelon. Way to go. Go team. So those who are rich in this present age are not to be arrogant. And don't trust in the uncertain riches. But we trust in the living God. You guys picking up on a trend here? These are all things that we know. And these are all things that we say. But what they're not are things that we do. Okay? God gives us all things to enjoy. One more, Luke 16. Jesus dealing with the Pharisees. He's always dealing with the Pharisees. Why were they so opposed to him? Why couldn't they see him as the Messiah? He'd done the miracles. He'd done everything he was supposed to do. He's fulfilling prophecy. Why couldn't they see him as the, the, um, the Messiah? Verse 14, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. These things were the miracles that he was doing. You see, if you remember, there were four miracles that the Messiah, only he could do. And he was doing those. And when, when somebody would report to them a messianic miracle, they'd have to go and investigate and have to see, like, oh, could this be the Messiah? But Jesus was coming in, not setting up the kingdom and elevating the Pharisees to the place of power that they already held, thinking that they were going to continue to hold. And why would they refuse to see him for what he was, especially once he rose from the grave? Because they were lovers of money. Now, what does that mean? They weren't lovers of God. They were lovers of money. And the system that they had installed was going really well for them. So they convinced themselves he can't be the Messiah because they didn't want him to be. He was talking about a new system. He's saying, hey, if you want to be great, be least. You want to be rich, you need to be poor. They don't like that. You see, this is the world that we live in. And the way God deals with money is the antithesis to anything that the world has. You want to be rich? You need to give. But we're taught we've got to go and we've got to save and we've got to invest wise and all of that. And those are all good things. But what does it start with? We give first. We call it tithing. They called it tithing in the Old Testament, the first fruits offering. We're going to get into all that kind of stuff, guys. But we do it last. It's the last thing that we do. And let me give you some statistics. Okay? Tithers. Okay, those who give, tithing is 10% of your income. You give it off the top, you give it to the Lord. That is how they did in the Old Testament. They would give the first fruit of their offspring from the, from the animals or the farms. They didn't always have the monetary system that we have today. Tithers make up only somewhere between 10 to 25% of a normal congregation. Tithers. So these are people that give 10% of their income in a typical congregation and a church. T somewhere between 10 and 25% of the congregation are actual tithers. Some will throw in a few bucks here and there. But, but, I mean, they actually would be considered a tither who gives a 10%. Only 5% of the United States tithes, with 80% of Americans only giving 2% of their income. These are church-going folks. So 80% of 
give less than 2%. In fact, the last statistic I saw was 1.8%. Okay? So the average churchgoer gives 1.8% of their income. Now, how much church good has the church done in the world? It's done a lot. Could you imagine what it could do if everybody tithed? Could you imagine? I mean, it would, it would blow our socks off. Christians are only giving at a 2.5% per capita rate. Now watch this. During the Great Depression, right, the worst depression this country has ever seen, Christians at that point were giving 3.3%. We're giving less today, and yet we have more. Why do you think that is? The biggest part is, is we don't understand how money operates. and We don't make wise decisions with it. And we buy into the lie that I've got to keep up with the Joneses. And I don't know who the Joneses are and why they keep getting thrown under the bus, but I bet they're nice folks. But, I mean, that's the thing. We try to do this. We need to get more. I need to have this. And we're never satisfied with it. Okay? Now, there are three main religions in the United States. Main. There are others, but there are three main ones. Christianity was a, is a given. Muslim is one. Judaism is another. Okay? Those are the three, the trifecta, if you will, the three big faiths, okay? I don't want to get into all the details about those, but when you look at the average of what they give, now listen to this, Christians on average donate $817.42 to the churches per year. So all the ch churches that give, you know, $817. So if they were tithing, that means they made what? A little over 8000 bucks a year, okay? I don't know anybody making that low. I know high schoolers that make more than that in the summer mowing grass. Okay, that's Christians on average. On average, Muslims donate $1,309.23 every year. Muslims. Okay. Jews. Remember, Jews are cheap. Did you guys hear about the latest Jewish car? They just came out with it. Stops on a dime and picks it up. I'm going to send that one to Raleigh. If you don't know, he's our Jewish missionary. Jews donate on average $1,442.91. They're the most of the big three. What do you think that is? Now, you have Muslims that believe in a God that requires sacrifice. Not monetarily, but life. They believe in Allah. It's not the same God as, as Christians. They, they, it's completely opposite. But they try to tell you that it is. They donate more. Jews who believe in the same God but reject their own Messiah, Jesus, who came to them, reject him, and they give more. And yet we're believers in the way, the truth, and the life, and we stand on Scripture for what it is, and yet on average we give so much more or less, and yet over 2,000 verses dealing with this. You see, we have a heart problem here because the reality is you don't need God to do well in this country. You don't need God to do much in this country. You don't need God to be better. You can go to the doctor anytime you want, right? You can pay the bill. It might be expensive, and the beautiful thing is, if you can't pay the bill, you can file bankruptcy, and it'll all go away. I said beautiful. Probably the wrong word to use there. I mean, but that's just the way we're set up. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. You can't do that in other countries. I mean, people die of fevers because there is no doctor. We do not have to have faith in this country, and it's the worst thing that's ever happened to us. We're going to drill down on this, but just think about this. Remember, every time throughout the Old Testament when the Israelites fell, they, they were not worshiping God, it always was set up by a time of prosper, prosperity. It was when they quit being thankful for what they had. 
and quit being thankful for what God provided them. In fact, Moses, right before they, he died and they're going to go into the promised land, he said, listen, don't forget who provided this for you because you're going to live in houses you didn't build and you're going to reap a harvest from a field that you didn't plant and you're going to drink water from a well that you didn't dig. Never forget. And that's where we're at today, not just in the church but in this country, is that there was a lot of things laid down for us that we get to enjoy today because somebody else dug the ditches and somebody else dug the well. Somebody else built the house. We didn't have to do it. We just got to pay for it. So guys, as we get into this, we're going to drill down this and we're going to focus on what God says about money and giving and all of this other stuff. And I just ask you to stay with me and promise me, no matter what, you won't get mad at me. That's all I ask. Okay? If you do get mad at me, I'll give you Stan's email and you can talk to him. Okay? <laughs> <laughs>